If you would, uh, find your seats and open up your scriptures to, we're going to be in Luke chapter 18 today. Luke 18. And we'll be starting in verse 18. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasures in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he became sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then... Who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, our Father in heaven, God, I pray, Lord, as we look into this story, this text, this story written down by Luke, inspired by you as, as the author, Lord, behind not only the story, but behind the true event, the sovereign God of the universe, Lord. I pray as we come to this story this morning, Lord, that you would teach us how important the gospel is, or how important the good news of Jesus Christ is, Lord. God, I pray that we leave today, and if we come with this conviction, I pray, pray that, that we leave with the same conviction. If we, we, we come with a different conviction, Lord, I pray we leave with the conviction that the Gospels is what we are to be focused on as a church. That the Gospel as Christians, Lord, is what we are to be focused on as we go out and engage in our community in our culture, as, as we send those out to the nations, Lord, that we send them with the gospel, that we would be a gospel-centered church, Lord. Be with us this morning in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't do this uh, very often, but we're going to be taking a break from the book that we're in, Exodus. Um, if you're new, we believe in, in expositional preaching, meaning going through Scripture verse by verse, passage by passage. And, and if you've been here for, for any sort of time, you know that we're in the book of Exodus. But today we're going to be taking a break from Exodus, and here's why. Last week during this service, and 
it really didn't happen during second service. It was during first service. Last week, during the sermon, I really felt like my, my spirit was provoked within me. Uh, what I mean by that, it's kind of like I'm picturing Paul in Acts 17 where it says his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city full of idols. Last week, I just had this strong conviction just put on my heart during church, during the sermon. I went off my notes, and I couldn't stop thinking about it Sunday night, and I couldn't stop thinking about it Monday morning. It's a strong conviction within my soul when I read one verse last week that wasn't even a part of the sermon as a whole, and it was Luke 19.10, which says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. As I said last week, Jesus didn't come to be a political leader. He didn't come to end poverty. He didn't come to heal the sick, even though he healed many, in fact, whole cities. He didn't come primarily to heal the sick. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. It just really hit me when I read that, just in the middle of the sermon as I was standing up here last Sunday, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Matthew 16, 26. And just think about that for a second. What does it profit a man if he's fed, if he's rich, if he's comfortable, if he's healthy, and he spends eternity in hell? The answer is absolutely nothing. This is just so important. Our, our earthly ministries do not matter if they lose focus of the gospel. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and he passed that mission down to the church. Matthew 28, 17, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. How do we make disciples? With the gospel. I just was convicted last week because I just believe there's a huge danger right now, especially for evangelical, conservative, Christian churches. There's a huge danger of just losing our focus of the gospel by focusing on earthly things. And there's a lot of pressure right now on especially conservative, Christian conservatives, I just was convicted when I read Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Last week we were in Exodus and it led us to the New Testament, to Luke, to a man named Zacchaeus where Jesus found and saved this man. A tax collector, in fact, he was a chief tax collector, a thief, he was hated by everyone part of an evil system, an evil political system established by the Roman government meant on purpose to oppress people. Listen, Jesus didn't start a political revolution against the evil practices of Rome. He didn't start a political campaign against the, the tax collecting system. You know what he did? 
he went to Zacchaeus' house and he shared the gospel with him. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And you know what? He found Zacchaeus. A sinful man, completely and utterly lost. Jesus found him and told him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must go and stay at your house today. He sought after Zacchaeus and said, Today salvation has come to this house. Again, this is why Jesus came. He came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus, listen, he, he never lost focus of the gospel. He called out political corruption. He called out religious corruption. He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. But while doing all of this, he never lost focus of the gospel. He came to seek and save the lost. And the church, the church is to continue this purpose. In fact, this is why Paul says in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Today, again, just it was put on my, my heart. I hope it was put on my heart by the Holy Spirit. Today, I want to focus on the gospel. We'll be back in Exodus at some point. If you're new to Christianity, the gospel just simply means good news. It's news. It's all it is. It's news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ that he came to seek and save the lost. Today I want to focus on the power of the gospel, and I want to do it by looking at another passage, another story of another man who, unlike Zacchaeus, is nameless in Scripture. He's often just called the rich young ruler. So I have three points of the sermon this morning. The gospel starts with God. That's the first point. The gospel starts with God. The second point, the gospel reveals the depravity of man's heart. And the third point is this, the gospel is the power that makes the impossible possible. So let's start with God. The gospel starts with God. Look at verse 18. Let's walk verse by verse through this passage. Verse 18, chapter 18 of Luke, says this, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is a famous story. In fact, most of us, I'm sure, have heard this story. It's a very important story. That might be surprising because I think some of us are confused exactly what this story means and its purpose. But it's, it's a very important story. And I know this because all three synoptic gospels have this story in it. That means Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three have this story. It's repeated three times in Scripture, that means. So it's an important story. Let me just start by asking a question. Who is this man? I think that's an important question to ask. We know some things about this man. We know that he's a ruler. It just said that. A ruler came to Jesus in verse 18. This probably means he was a ruler of a synagogue. We don't know for sure, but most likely that, that's what it was. He was a ruler of a synagogue, which means he was considered, as a ruler of a synagogue, extremely spiritual and morally upright. 
We also learn that he was young. Matthew points this out in, in Matthew 19, verse 20, and he probably pointed this out in Matthew because that was very unusual for a ruler of a synagogue to be young, meaning this guy was well-respected and honored from a young age. And he must have shown some exemplary uh, character to be such a young ruler. He, we also know that this man was rich. In fact, Luke says extremely rich at the end of verse 23. So he wasn't just rich, he was extremely rich. He was a rich, young ruler. And he came to Jesus with a genuine question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I believe this is genuine. I think he, he, he really wants an answer to this for a couple of reasons. First, Mark says that this man ran up and knelt before Jesus, showing Jesus a ton of honor. He ran up to him when he saw him, excited to see him, and knelt before him. It doesn't seem like, like the Pharisees or Sadducees that were trying to trick Jesus. It seems like he had a genuine question, and he did this in front of everyone. Also, he... When he didn't get the answer he was hoping for, which is obvious in this passage, he wasn't mad, he wasn't irritated, he wasn't indifferent. Instead, he was sad. And all three Gospels, Synoptic Gospels, point this out very clearly, that he walked away sad, sorrowful, very sad. Finally, the reason why I think this is a genuine question is that he calls Jesus good teacher. Now, that might not sound that unusual to us. We've called people good teachers before, good something or others, but in the Jewish culture, people didn't use that word good flippantly. Right? Goodness was, a, was an attribute of God, so Jews didn't use that term, especially for teachers. And in fact, most of the Hebrew writing that we have, extra biblical writing, we, we can't even find one place where a rabbi is called a good teacher. It's just very unusual for someone to call someone a good teacher because that's an attribute usually devoted to God. This ruler, in other words, was giving Jesus extremely high praise by calling him good teacher. So I believe this was a genuine question from a young man who respected Jesus, hoping for an answer. But I also believe this was a revealing question. A revealing question. Look at what he says. He says this, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? Self-focused here. He was looking for some good deed. In fact, in Matthew, it seems like he was looking for one good deed. Like, I'm, I'm almost there, but there's, there has to be something else. I'm missing something. Meaning, this guy thought he was a righteous man, but in his heart, he knew that he was missing something. He, he wasn't there. It's a revealing question. He came to Jesus hoping for an answer, what must I do? It's a legalistic question. It's focused on his actions. Now, Jesus is going to give an amazing answer. In fact, we're going to spend some time on his answer, and I think you'll see how amazing and perfect this answer actually is. But let me just stop before we get there, and you probably know the answer already, but just think for a second. Before we look at it, let me ask you a question. How would you answer this man? Picture it in your head. Not in the situation of ancient Israel, but just today. Someone runs up to you and says, 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? You're a Christian. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm guessing most of us would go straight to faith. You must have faith. Well, it's interesting. That's not what Jesus does. He doesn't start with man. He doesn't start with what man is supposed to do. He starts with God. Look at verse 19. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, this is an amazing answer. It's simple, but amazing. And we're going to dig this answer out a little bit. But now, before we look at this, I want to be clear that Jesus is not denying his deity here. There's some people that try to make a claim that Jesus is denying that he's God. That, that just doesn't fit with the rest of, claim, the rest of the claims that Jesus makes throughout the gospel. In John 8, 58, he says this. Right? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's, he's clearly referring back to Exodus 3 here. That's God's name. It's related to Yahweh. It's not his name, but it's related to Yahweh. And he's clearly referring to that, saying he has the name of God. In fact, the Jews got it because they pick up stones to stone him after he says that. In John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. In John 14, 9, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Again, in all these instances, the, the Jews knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He was making himself equal to God, and the commentary tells us that they picked up stones to stone him. <laughs> Therefore, in Luke 18, 19, Jesus wasn't denying his deity. Instead, he was challenging this man's assumptions. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. When you call me good, are you saying that I'm I'm just a good teacher, a human, or do you believe that I am God? Because no one is good except God alone. This is so important because these two beliefs, these two beliefs are radically different. And I can't emphasize that more. (laughs) Radically different. There is radical different implications between these two beliefs on your life. If you believe that Jesus is just a good teacher, which most in our culture, and we've heard this, right, that's not going to impact your life very much. But if you truly believe that Jesus is God, that, that, that has radical implications. It doesn't take much. Just think about it. Again, Jesus is challenging this guy's assumption. But that's not all he's doing. He's also teaching this man about God's character. He's starting with God. God is good. Meaning God is righteous. He's holy. He's just. No one is good except God alone. God is good. This is super key to the gospel. Listen, the gospel starts with God. It doesn't start with man. It starts with God. It starts with his goodness, his holiness, and his justice. 
If you don't start here, I just want to be clear, you don't have the gospel. And if you don't confirm the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God, fully man and fully God, we're clear, it's not the gospel. Anyone that denies the goodness of God and or the deity of Christ, to be clear on this, is not our partners. They're our mission field. If you don't start here, God's holiness and, and Christ's deity, you don't have the gospel. This brings me to the second point this morning. The gospel reveals the depravity of man. If you look at verse 20, and continue walking through this passage, Jesus is still speaking to this young ruler. He says this in verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Now, at this point, our church, we should be super familiar with the Ten Commandments. We spent all summer walking through each commandment one by one. Therefore, I want you to see what Jesus does here. I'm sure it just jumps out at you, right? He only quotes five out of the Ten Commandments, all, all from the second half of the Ten Commandments, which we know focuses on our horizontal relationships. We've talked about this all summer, our relationships with one another, love of neighbor. Love our neighbors as ourselves is the second greatest commandment, right? So why does Jesus start here? Well, I believe, and I've said this a number of times from the pulpit this summer, I believe it's pretty easy to, to fool yourself into thinking that you love God. It's much harder to prove your love for God by loving your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus is always challenging the Pharisees with the second greatest commandment because they definitely thought they loved God. And he's pointing out, well, how, are you, how could you love God if you don't love the image of God? I think he's doing the same thing here with this rich young ruler. Therefore, Jesus goes straight to love of neighbor, and in doing so, he's exposing the sin of this guy to himself. He, he's, he's trying to pull out and, and show him that he's a sinner. And he's doing that with the law. But look how the ruler responds to Jesus in verse 21. And he said, this is the ruler, he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now, that seems pretty ridiculous, right? <laughs> For us, again, we study the Ten Commandments, so we've walked through the Ten Commandments and, and saw just how demanding the Ten Commandments truly are. We know that the Ten Commandments don't deal with external actions only. Right? They deal with the heart. Jesus made this very clear, but the Ten Commandments themselves make it very clear without even Jesus' teaching. You, you'll get there. It's about the heart. God's concerned with the heart. Therefore, if you're just angry with a brother, you're a murderer of the heart. If you've ever lusted after a woman, you're an adulterer within the heart. The standard is, is way too high. Therefore, how could someone answer all these I have kept from my youth, God's holy standard is way too demanding to say something like that. Well, think about it for a second. This is what most people believe, even today. 
If you ask the average non-Christian, are they going to heaven, what are they going to say? The average non-Christian will say yes. If you ask why, you know what they're going to say? I'm a pretty good person. You know what they're going to say after that? I've never murdered anyone. I've never committed adultery. I've never cheated on my wife. I've never robbed anyone. It's exactly what this guy is saying. He truly believes from his youth on he has kept all the commandments. And remember this. He's a ruler of a synagogue, right? Meaning a spiritual leader, someone that's looked up to as morally upright. And he was also rich. Now, that sounds foreign to us as a, as a culture. But in this culture, in that, in that culture, in, in, in that day and age, people thought the rich were being blessed by God because of their righteousness. And the poor and the sick were being cursed by God because of their sinfulness. Therefore, the rich would often point to their wealth as a sign of righteousness. Look, God's blessing me for the life I'm living. And look what Luke says at the end of verse 23. He was extremely rich. This guy has been told his whole life, in other words, that he was a righteous man. And the proof of his righteousness was his wealth. God obviously was blessing him. That's what he thought. In other words, he thought he was a good person. But there's one major problem with that. He's already forgotten the teaching of Jesus. He's come to Jesus because he thinks he's a good teacher. And what did Jesus tell him? Verse 19. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Listen, with this one line, this, this one simple, amazing answer by Jesus, Jesus teaches both the goodness of God, his holiness and righteousness and, and his justice, and at the same time, the depravity of man, man's sinful nature. One simple line. No one is good. No human is good. Romans 3.10, none is righteous. No, not one. No one is good except God alone. God is good. Psalms 105. For the Lord is good. This man thought he was righteous because of his position, because of his deeds, because of his wealth. But Jesus makes it very clear, right? From the start in verse 19. No one is good except God alone. This leads to another key point of the gospel, which is this, the depravity of man's heart. Man is sinful. This is so countercultural right now, this phrase. Man is not born good. Man is not born good. Don't follow your heart. That's, that's the last thing you should do. Disney's wrong. It thinks man is born good, therefore follow your heart. No, man is not born good. He's born a sinner. He's born depraved. He's born lost. Again, Romans 3.10, none is righteous. 
No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I mean, I think there's a point that is trying to get across there. In verse 19, Jesus teaches two fundamental truths about the gospel. God is good. Man is sinful. Therefore, there's a separation between God and man. A holy God and a sinful people, there's a separation, there's a difference, there's a problem. This is so important. Without understanding this, that that man is born with a sin nature, destined for hell from birth, Ephesians 2 makes that extremely clear, 1 through 3, you don't have the gospel. If you don't teach that, if you don't believe that, if you don't proclaim that, it's not the gospel. Therefore, Jesus is not going to let this man go without exposing the depravity within his heart. This guy thinks he's righteous, and, and Jesus is going to gently and softly and kindly and lovingly expose the depravity within this guy's heart. Look at verse 22. When Jesus heard this, and what's this, the, the, that the man thought he has kept all the commandments, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute uh, to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now once again, this is just such an amazing response. It's so simple, and I think most of us have heard this read so many times, but it's just amazing. Within this, within this one verse, Jesus brings together the two greatest commandments. Love God, right? worship God, and love your neighbor as yourself. The two greatest commandments. They're brought together in this, in this one verse. He sums up, in other words, because we know this, the entire moral law. All ten commandments, he sums up in this, in this one verse. I mean, just think about it. If the ruler truly loved his neighbor as himself, he'd have no problem selling all his stuff and giving it to his neighbor. Because why? He doesn't love, if you, the only reason you want to keep it is because you love yourself more than your neighbor. This really, ruler truly loved worship, or really had a worship of God and, and, and loved God alone, he'd have no problem listening to him. No matter what the cost. In this one verse, Jesus is exposing this man's greatest sin, and his greatest sin is idolatry. False worship. Look at verse 23. But when he heard these sayings, he became very sad. And he, for he was extremely rich. In other words, he was not willing to sacrifice his riches to follow Christ. In other words, he valued his wealth more than Christ. In other words, he worshipped his wealth more than God. Therefore, in reality, this man wasn't even obeying the first commandment. You should have no other gods before me. His God was his wealth. Jesus was exposing this man's greatest sin in just such a marvelous way. 
Now, you might be thinking, because I think it's a legitimate question, and I've thought this as I've read through this passage, I don't know how many times growing up as a kid in the church. You might be thinking, what about faith? This kind of seems like a works-based salvation here that Jesus is promoting. He goes through the law, the Ten Commandments, and tells them, sell your stuff and give to the poor, and then you'll have eternal life. And It sounds like a works-based salvation. I want to be clear, that's not what Jesus is teaching here. Let's be very careful. Verse 22 says this, When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and and distribute to the poor. Now, I just want to say this, if Jesus stopped here, if he just stopped here, salvation by works. But he doesn't stop here. He says this, And you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. It's faith. Just like Abraham, when, when God came to Abraham and said, leave everything and go. And he went. Because he had faith in, in God. Jesus is telling this guy, have faith. Trust me. That heavenly riches are worth more than earthly riches. That's where the faith comes in. Therefore, sell your stuff, come follow me, trust me, follow me, have faith in me, and you will have treasure in heaven. Trust me. Jesus is calling this ruler to faith. To faith. Come and follow me. It was a call to faith. Therefore, this wasn't about works. We can't earn our way to salvation through works is exactly what Jesus is, is, is telling this guy. You can't do it through works. You can't earn salvation by giving to the poor. That's not how you earn salvation. You can't earn salvation, period. This was a call to faith, which leads to another key aspect of the gospel. It's salvation by grace through faith Alone. That last point is so important. You, you add anything to, to faith, you, you negate grace. If you add anything to faith, any type of works, any type of good deed, if you add baptism, communion, it's not the gospel. In fact, anyone that adds to faith, they're not our partners. They're not our partners. I don't care if you have the same political views as them and they line up. I don't care if you have the same similar hobbies. If anyone adds anything to faith and thinks they are saved, they are our mission field, not our partners. And if they don't have the gospel, I want to be clear on this. They are proclaiming something other than the gospel, which has no power whatsoever to save. That means they are condemning people to hell when they proclaim it. It's grace alone through faith alone. That's why Jesus says, come and follow me. Trust me. Follow me. 
Trust me with your entire life. Faith leads to works. True faith leads to works. Trust me with your entire wealth, he tells this rich young ruler, and you will have riches in heaven. It's trust. Now before I get to the next point, I want to point something out, and we might be getting out late today, but... I want to point something out that I think is just extremely important. Verse 23, look what it says. It says, but, but when he heard these things, this is a, the teaching of Jesus. When, when the rich young ruler heard these things, what happened? He became very sad. Turn with me to, to Mark 10, verse 21. We'll be right back in Luke, so keep your finger there. But I want you to see this in Mark 10. I would like, if you have your scriptures, turn. I want you to see this in your, in your word. This is the parallel account. Remember, all three synoptic gospels tell this story. Mark just adds some interesting things I think are super important, especially this verse. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes this. In verse 21, it says this, And Jesus, looking at him, just picture this, looking at him eye to eye, Jesus looking at him what? Loved him. How did Jesus love him? You know how Jesus loved him? By speaking the truth. You want to model Jesus' love? You might have people that walk away sad or mad or frustrated with you. He speaks the truth. Loved him and said this. I mean, right there. Loved him, and this is how he loved him. By saying this. You lack one thing, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come and follow me. In other words, you're a sinner. That's how he loved him. And look what the results of this love. Verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. You would never hear from this guy again. We don't even know his name. He walks away sad. This is so important. This is so important when it comes to the gospel. If we're going to stand for the gospel, we're going to lose relationships over it. Jesus was willing to wreck a relationship over the gospel. He proclaimed truth, which made a lot of people mad, and by the way, enough to kill him on the cross. But for this guy, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. Listen, the gospel is too important not to risk our relationships. It's too important not to risk our relationships. I've said this a number of times. Truth without love is harsh. Jesus was so kind in this interaction. Truth without love is harsh. We are to speak truth in love, but love without truth is not love. If you're withholding the gospel from someone, you don't love them. You're not loving them. Jesus looked him right in the eyes and loved him by telling him the truth and ended up wrecking their relationship. Gospel truth will do that. It'll do that. 
and it's not loving to withhold it. Turn back to Luke chapter 18. This brings me to my third and final point this morning. Here is where we get to the good news. The gospel makes the impossible possible. It makes the impossible possible. Right? In one sense, you, you hear this calling of Jesus, and, and God, I just want to be clear, hasn't called all of us to, to sell our riches and give them all to the poor. That's not the point of this, this meaning, but, but as Christians, we better be willing to. We better be willing to sacrifice everything to say Christ is worth more than anything else. But in one real sense, this is a really hard calling by Jesus, right? I mean, think about it. Trust me enough to sell everything, give it to the poor, and just come follow me. That's a hard calling. Well, look at verse 24. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, the ruler said, this is what Jesus said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Well, according to this passage, it seems hard. <laughs> in fact, this is how most people interpret this passage, that it's hard for a rich person to be saved. I mean, how many of you guys have heard something like that from this passage? It's hard for a rich person to be saved. Well, look what Jesus says, verse 25. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You know what Jesus is saying here? It's not hard. It's impossible. <laughs> Let me explain verse 25. These people try to misinterpret this because they, they just can't believe what Jesus is saying here. I won't go through all the misinterpretations. Let me just tell you what is going on in verse 20. This is figurative, poetic, hyperbolic language. It's kind of like when you say when pigs fly or, or when hell freezes over. It, those things are ridiculous, and it's ridiculous to emphasize a point, and the point is never when you say that, Right? It's the same here. It's a familiar saying in, in that day and age. Usually they use the word elephant, not camel, but the camel is the biggest animal in that area. It's a familiar saying to emphasize the point, and the point is this. It's impossible. It's impossible. Just think of how ridiculous the thought is. Think of an eye of a needle, a sewing needle. Think of the eye and now a camel. How ridiculous is it to try to thread a needle with a camel? It's not hard. It's impossible. And that's the point. Again, verse 20, 25. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying it's impossible. I want you to hear this. It's impossible for a rich person to be saved. It's impossible. They have no power within themselves to be saved. But I want you to see what Jesus is doing here. You know what he's doing? He's answering the original question. What's the original question? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' answer, there's nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. It's impossible. That's his answer. You have no power to, to inherit eternal life. You have no power to save yourself. Verse 25, for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter 
kingdom of God. It's actually a very similar answer they gave to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Listen, it goes beyond that. And, I, and I, we've got to get this in context here. It goes beyond that. It goes beyond rich people. Remember the, the culture. Everyone thought rich people were being blessed by God. They were the righteous. The Pharisees were wealthy. Therefore, think about what the audience heard when Jesus said this. If it's impossible for the rich to be saved, then no one can be saved. That's Jesus' point. This is why in the Gospel of Mark, it says the disciples were exceedingly astonished. They were astonished a lot, but there's an emphasis this time. In fact, you see the frustration later on in this passage going, well, What's that mean for us? Jesus was teaching the disciple that, that that man has no power within himself at all to change his heart, to change his affections and desires from worldly things to heavenly things. Absolutely no power within himself. He has no power to take a dead, lifeless heart of stone and bring it to life. Outside of power, I mean, we'd have to have the same power of raising someone from the dead that is physically dead. Man is born depraved, sinful, and completely lost. Let me just read Romans 3.10 one more time. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one, which leads to an extremely important question, and who can be saved? That's what, what the, the audience asked when they heard this, verse 26. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Here's the good news, verse 27. But he said, what is impossible with man it's possible with God. Listen, salvation comes from God, not man. It comes from God, not man. Even faith is a gift from God. It comes from God. Ephesians 2.8, Acts 13.48, 2 Timothy 2.25, all make that extremely clear. Again, what is impossible with man is possible with God. I like Mark's account. He says this in Mark 10, verse 27. He says, Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. In other words, man doesn't have the power to change his heart. Listen, I... I just don't think we understand how lost we were. I don't care if you've grown up in the church your whole life and, and seemingly didn't do anything wrong. I don't care if you're a drug addict on the streets and, and God got a hold of your heart. Either way, I don't think you understand just how lost 
you were. Before God found us and saved us. Before God intervened in our life. Before God changed our hearts. Salvation is a miracle from God. Every time we do a baptism, that's just a a sign of a miracle that's happened before. It's only a changed heart that can produce faith needed to follow Christ. And it's only God who can change man's heart. Salvation is a miracle. It's bringing life to the dead. It's just as much, if not more, a miracle than when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Which leads to an important question. This is kind of the whole point of why this sermon this morning. Does this mean the church or us Christians individually, does this mean we have no part in the salvation of men? Well, no, we do have a part. We have a part to play, and that's clear in Romans 1.16, because it says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, God uses the gospel to change people's hearts. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. He invites us to be a part of it. We have this perception in our mind that if we don't do it, then it's not going to happen. Like God's going to save who he's going to save. You know what? You know what it is? We get the privilege of being a part of it. That's the perception we should have. We have nothing to do with it. We just bring the gospel and watch God do the, the miraculous work. He invites us in to be a part of it. God uses the gospel to make the impossible possible. And this is why the gospel is primary, it's foundational. This is why the gospel is so important. This is why Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. You know, I feel like the church is, is getting tempted to be ashamed of the gospel, not, not because of what you would think ashamed of the gospel, but because of making it less of a priority than other things. This is more, more important right now. Just fill in the blank, right? Feed the poor, politics, whatever. I mean, everyone wanted Jesus to be about politics. Everyone wants the church to be about politics right now. When we elevate that to the gospel or above the gospel, you know what? You're ashamed of the gospel. I'm not saying these things aren't important. The Bible makes it very clear that politics, feeding the hungry, all those things are important, but not near as important as the gospel. This is why the church needs to keep its focus on the gospel. Again, the gospel makes the impossible possible. Verse 25 For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But here's the good news. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Turn with me to Luke 19, verse 1, and we'll end here. Verse 1. He, that's Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named who? Zacchaeus, 
He was the chief tax collector and what? He was rich. Zacchaeus was rich. You know what Luke's doing here? He's connecting the two stories. That's why he adds that phrase. He's connecting Zacchaeus' story to the rich young ruler. He's connecting Zacchaeus' story to the teaching of Jesus, right? For it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. By a miracle, Zacchaeus' heart was changed and he trusted in Jesus and was saved. It's a miracle. In fact, his faith produced works, did it? He did exactly what the rich young ruler couldn't do. He stopped worshiping wealth, gave half of his wealth to the poor, and gave the other half to the people that he cheated. Look at verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is why Jesus came. He was concerned with eternity, not earthly comforts, not earthly wealth, not earthly politics. He came to seek and to save the lost. And he passed this purpose down to the church through the Great Commission. We are to take the gospel as the church to the ends of the earth. Everything we do should be gospel-focused. Everything we should do needs to be gospel-centered. Listen, if we lose our gospel-centered focus, we lose what really matters, eternity. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Absolutely nothing. Let's pray. Dear Lord, God, I know from from a biblical worldview, the Bible informs every aspect of our life. Everything we do, we should should be informed. We should see through the lens of of the Bible, Lord. And and that affects how, how we think, how we interact with others, how we are gracious towards people, how we we love people, how we, how we vote, how we get involved in different aspects of this earthly life, Lord. But if we truly have a biblical worldview, we will be gospel-centered. That everything we do, which a lot of the things that we do outside of the gospel is important, but none of them come close to the importance of eternity, the importance of sharing and proclaiming and teaching the gospel. God, I pray that we as a church, that we don't lose focus of the gospel as as pressures come alongside us and we find ourselves partnering with people that may not be in the same belief systems as us, Lord, that, that we realize if they don't have the gospel, they're not our partners, they're our mission field.
God, help us to be bold with the gospel. Help us to be like Paul who says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God to salvation. Help us to be concerned with what truly matters. The life after this, not this one. In your son's name, amen. Thank you.